Connects Media, this is Atlanta Born and Brand. I'm your host, Jonathan Hilliard. Atlanta Born and Brand is a show all about businesses being built right here in the capital of the South. But more importantly, it's a show about their founders. We wanted to find some of the city's most interesting entrepreneurs and creators, hear about their challenges, successes, and how they built a brand that will last. One of the best parts about doing this show is that we get to learn something new with each guest we bring on. Today's guest gave us a chance to learn a different side of the food industry, the butter side, you could say. On a trip to France, Drew and Elizabeth McBath became enamored with the small French creameries and how they were selling their butter. The butter was all locally sourced and made, churned right on the very farm the cream came from in many cases. Inspired by the French, upon returning home, the two decided to take the plunge and start churning out their own small batches of slow-cultured butter. In the United States, most of the butter we eat has natural flavorings added to it, and there are only a small amount of suppliers. The team at Banner Butter is on a mission to change that, one batch at a time. We proudly present to you Drew McBath, founder of Banner Butter. Um, first, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. You know, we kind of, we prided ourselves in the, in the first few seasons of this on having uh, one-on-one in-person face-to-face uh, interviews that, you know, we're like sitting in a coffee shop and get, getting to know one another. So we're trying to make the best of this, this whole Zoom uh, interaction <laughs> thing, but uh, at the same time, um, Still just very thankful that we've got a, a platform to, uh, to talk to you guys through. So uh, something I like to ask people to start off the show is if you're walking down the street, Drew, and, and you bump into somebody you don't know and a conversation starts and they say, okay, well, who are you and what do you do? What's your, uh, what's your 30 second minute long elevator pitch or, or response to that question? Well, I, I usually start that. If, if I usually start it out with, um, you know, if it's a professional question, sometimes those those interactions aren't really professional, but it's a professional question. I, I start out with, I own a butter business. And that sentence usually gives <laughs> people pause or, you know, they have an exclamation, sort of very, you know, raised eyebrows or whatever it may be. It's usually a surprise response. And that leads to additional questions about, you know, what, a butter business? Are you crazy? You know, what? <laughs> uh, how did that get started? And so I sort of just put that one sentence out there and let the questions, questions come. Um, right. It's a, it's a, as you'll soon find out, it's a multi-layered uh, story and experience that I couldn't really distill into, you know, 10, 10, 15 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. So take me, take me sort of back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and, and what were the circumstances that sort of shaped you know, as you're coming up through, um, you know, education and school that shaped, you know, leading into being an entrepreneur and then, and then ultimately starting a, but, a butter business. I love that question. Um, Cause I get to talk about myself and, but it, it goes really far back. And, yeah. and I do think that people's childhood really kind of influence what they do later no on. No doubt about it. Um, my mom, you know, my, uh, my mom raised me and my two sisters alone here in Atlanta. We moved uh, from North Carolina 
to uh, Thomaston, Georgia, which is uh, a little bit south of Atlanta for a year or two. My mom was a teacher and she um, quickly moved to Atlanta where she, she grew up pretty much and her family was here to help take care of us. And, um, and so we were, we were kind of on our own and um, mom didn't have a ton of time uh, to take care of us, but she was a loving mother and cooking was a big deal for her. My grandmother, we were always over at my grandmother's house, my mom's mom, and my grandmother definitely was a big cook. And uh, so those times in the kitchen with the family, um, with my grandmother and my mom and my uncle were just um, really, really gave me an affection uh, to food. Um, and it wasn't just like sustenance, like physical sustenance. It was uh, kind of an emotional connection. And so, um, and the other sort of weird thing about it was my grandfather worked for Coca-Cola. Uh, and for anybody who's grown up in Atlanta and had a connection to Coke, their, their tentacles were, were everywhere. And, and we would go to six, every year they would have an employee um, day at, at Six Flags. And so the, the kids of all the employees could go to Six Flags, the Coca-Cola employees, and they basically rented out the whole park. And, uh, and my grandfather had passed away by that point, but they would still give my grandmother tickets, you know, she was, I guess she was surviving uh, family. Yeah. And we would go there and, and I just got enamored with the idea of Coca-Cola and um, them selling a product on the shelves and, you know, connecting. Uh, and so for growing up, I was just always very fascinated by food and selling food is weird, you know, like lemonade stands and um, I was paid a lot of attention to, to brands that were on the shelf. And uh, so there was a lot going on there and, and definitely an early connection to that. Um, I went to business school and, you know, had a political science degree and went and, and was sort of like, I'm not really sure what business is. And and but but felt like you know there was something entrepreneurial in me but i wasn't quite sure how to define that um and so i, I went to business school and my first inclination was like you know i'd really like to um work for a consumer packaged good company you know like a coke or or you know somebody who's selling food on the shelf um and i uh i interviewed with a few of those companies and nobody really, really wanted me. <laughs> um, and so I ended up working for a company who did want me for, for a number of years. And, but I, and it was a technology, technology company and consulting company. Um, and, but I always had in my back of my mind to get back to that, to selling food and to connecting to people emotionally through, through food. Um, because I think of, of all the products, I think movies are, are, are and music are, are kind of this way, but, but food is very, it's a very emotional connection, um, because it, you know, you're ingesting it. <laughs> and, um, and I felt like selling something that people really, really loved and connected with was something I wanted to do. Um, and so fast forward to 2012. My, I had been saving for a while and my wife and I have been talking about different food ideas and different um, 
different product ideas. And she, uh, she and I went to, to France and to Northern France, we were interested in butter. Um, we thought there was an opportunity there and we we're just really enamored with um, the way that small creameries in France um, were selling their, their butter. I mean, not, I'm not talking about Designay or President Butter, or, you know, these, or Kerrygold, these massive European butter conglomerates. Yeah. Um, these are small, uh, very small creameries that sell, sell butter locally. They, they get their cream, uh, their milk from local cows and churn on the farm sometimes and package in these beautiful little, <laughs> these beautiful little um, packages and sell at the local store and people in, Fr these, in northern France, they just go crazy. You know, they'll look at the butter. We were in stores and they would look at the butter for like, there'd be six different local butter varieties and they would, and the customers would look at these packages for, you know, three or four minutes trying to figure out which one they want. These were local shoppers. Sure. Um, and I just thought that was so neat and, and cool that, that there was so much attention paid to something that is considered, has been considered a commodity for so long in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and so we, we took back from that, like, this is, we think we want to, you know, churn our own butter and culture it and do some things uh, connect with the local farmers here and uh, ultimately sell something that we think is going to be special. And so that was the, the kernel of, um, of the idea for, for Banner Butter. And, and, you know, it went on from there. Yeah, it's super interesting to me because that's not your experience in American, an American grocery store, right? You go to <laughs> the, the butter aisle and you've got like the, <laughs> right. the low fat, you've got the, uh, you know, it seems like there's a selection, but it's a selection of these, you know, monster brands, right? Yes. And there's not a whole lot different, I would imagine, between what you're looking at. So is no. it, did you see, uh, is that kind of where you saw that white space of, wow, this is really cool and it's working somewhere else. Maybe, you know, that demand would be here. We just don't know that there's really an option yet. Well, I'm going to, so I was doing some research because, and I, 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 before I got on the call with you, and I knew this was true, but I didn't know to what extent it had changed over the years. And as you pointed out, Jonathan, that there are only a few butter brands. And even things like if you see Kerrygold, Kerrygold is a brand. It's, it's, uh, it's made by a bunch of different uh, gigantic uh, dairy plants in, in Ireland. Uh, same goes for uh, Challenge Butter or Dairy Gold or you know, land, different, different types of butters that you see, uh, Vital Farms is made by a, a bigger butter company um, up in, I think, Ohio. So any variety that you see on the shelves, for at least from a butter perspective, and I guess any dairy products, is going to be sort of pseudo variety mm. um, made in the same places. And it's the same milk and it's such a commoditized. Wow. Yeah. Um, it might be packaged differently, but uh, sure. same basic product. And so I was doing some research and I was like, well, how has that changed? You know, because, because over the years, um, things have centralized. So, um, in 1950, uh, um, there were 3000 butter plants, butter plants in the United States, plants making butter. Yeah. And just for reference, we, we do about 2000 pounds a week. So we're doing, you know, about a hundred, a little bit, 
110, 115,000 pounds per year. Okay. Butter production. So this will that'll kind of give you a reference point. Yeah. But in 1950, there were 3,000 butter plants across the United States. On average, they were producing around 500,000 pounds a year. That's back then. Yeah. So five times what we're doing. Uh, today, there are 93 butter plants in the United States. Wow. I was doing the math. It's like we, we sold in the United States, there was 2 million, 2 billion pounds of butter sold for various um, projects and you know, restaurants and confectionery and things. Yeah. Um, 2 billion pounds. There are only 93 plants. So that means that each plant is producing 20, 21 and a half million pounds of butter per year. That's 80,000 sticks of butter per day per plant in the United States. That's how big butter production, how centralized butter production has gotten here yeah. in the U.S. And so there's... So those large plants are doing roughly, roughly like 200x what you guys are doing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're uh, eight, they're doing 80,000 per day. We're doing 400 pounds per day. Four to six hundred pounds per day, so you know a, a, a quite a quite a large um, exponent there um, sure. in, in, in difference. And it's and and really it's it's a that is a symptom of commoditization. It's a um, the way that I think it's the way that um, dairy farmers have been uh, pushed into cooperatives and you know cooperatives and the subsidizations that, that have come from um the federal government yeah um, and they've commoditized it they said a milk a drop of milk is, is worth this much and this much butter is worth that much and we'll pay you for any overages and so they're like hmm, okay it is what it is right there's so there so it's just it's it's devolved in that way and and it's made it um uneconomical over the years for for production plants and dairy farmers to really differentiate mm. um, and it so that means if you have a commoditized uh, you know economy it's like marginal cost is the lowest marginal cost is going to win so they're just getting bigger 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 faster 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 and it, efficiency <laughs> yeah efficiency and with no thought to um, how is this how, what's the experience going to be for, for yeah. the customer that's, is it going to be different, different than, and so that, that's kind of, I'll get off my soapbox, but it, it, it just, it's so it's good because it, 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 it goes to the whole thought of, you know, why we don't think about butter that much is because all those big brands are the same. <laughs> yeah. They taste yeah, that's the same, a good point. They do the same thing. So we don't think of the fact that we have an option a lot because yeah. there's not a lot presented before us. It's, it's really interesting now that you kind of throw that data out there. It makes sense why that would be the case. Self-fulfilling, you know, it's kind of like it snowballs on itself. Sure. You set up certain policies, you got certain dynamics and then people are like, okay, well, I don't care because you're not giving me a reason to really care. Hmm. Um, so we didn't, I didn't understand that at all. I didn't understand that dynamic. And we sort of ran into a buzzsaw when we started the company of that, um, that dynamic. And 
and that was hard, you know, just kind of coming to that conclusion. It's like, why don't people care, <laughs> you know? And so I, it took us, um, you know, a number of years to just kind of get cut through the, the just, I don't know what you call it, just the, the inertia that was there, like, mm, yeah. it's different butter. I, I don't know, it looks different. And really sampling thousands, talking to thousands of people and going to farmer's markets and going to food and wine and made south and just talking to people to really, and for us getting, getting better, you know, we were, we weren't producing the best product when we first started. And so we, we just got better, better, better and understood it more and practiced, yeah. I guess. And that's helped us over the years and got to where we finally have a group of people that, that love our product and we're growing and, mm. you know, it's been, it's been heartening to see people really, really latch onto it. So you guys started the company in 2012. Is that? We did. Yeah. We started in 2012, very end of the year, 2012. Yeah. Didn't so, start until 2000, late 2013 or early 2014. Okay. But we weren't churning, altering our own butter until later. Yeah. So you see, like you said, you go overseas and you see in France, like the different products that people are, are putting to market. Um, how do you decide what your first product is? I know, you know, looking at, at your product offering now, there's a, a good range of, of different products that are very, very different, but how do you decide? You know, I know when people are starting companies, especially product companies, people warn you of, Hey, don't, like over skew this thing, you know, into 20 different options, figure out something that, you know, you can do really well, offer that. And then if that goes well, use that to fund, you know, additional skews when demand comes. But how did you guys go into the, the process and what was that first product that you guys put to market? It's funny that you bring that up, Jonathan, because, um, that goes through my mind all the time. Like, uh, you know, for this particular store, how many SKUs should be, how many product facing should we have? You know, what works best in this store? And it's constantly, the, the mix is, is constantly a, a challenge, you know, figuring it out for, for each store and working with the retailer to figure out what works best. For us, the, um, I mean, the way that I wanted it to work um, was we are, number one, we're a, we're an artisan cultured butter maker. We source uh, grass-fed milk, which I'll talk about in a second, um, locally, and we ferment, we slow ferment, and we batch churn, and we do all these different things to make it taste really good. And then we may add um, different ingredients and things and blends to make things you know easier to cook with, but First and foremost, we're a, a, a butter making company that does things the right way. Um, and then, you know, so once we got that out of the way, we're like, let's make really good unsalted uh, cultured butter. Uh, and then we'll add sea salt and uh, maybe we'll do roasted garlic and then, and then maybe cinnamon and cardamom. So we, we were like, make a really good unsalted salted and then let's have a savory and let's have a sweet. Mm. So that's kind of how it started. And our, so our first four SKUs that um, got a lot of traction were the 
unsalted, the sea salt, roasted garlic, which is like an herb butter, we'll use on steaks um, and, you know, whatever, veggies. Uh, and then a cinnamon cardamom ginger, which is kind of a sweet, sweet butter for breakfast and uh, roasting certain things. So that's how, how we thought about it. Um, and then from there, everything else was seasonal. Um, and when we add new skews, it's kind of a seasonal thing. Like we have a red pepper mash, which is fermented Fresno peppers, um, which is great for grilling or, you know, oyster season, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but that way we're not over skewing and we're not sort of losing our focus on getting out, getting those, those main skews out, out the door and, and marketing them properly. Sure. Yeah. And it is interesting to me, Drew, because, you know, you talked about your, your background growing up and, and going to school and political science. It's, it's not like you're this third generation butter maker who knows <laughs> the processes from right. you know, growing up. So what's the, what's the journey like for you of, okay, we have this idea, we want to do this now figuring out the processes and the steps. You know, you said you put a process in place to, to make really good tasting butter. How do you know how to do that? Off the, it was, it's, it's its own, it's, uh, it's crazy um, because as I mentioned earlier, there are people who are very experienced with gigantic butter making, you know, like uh, I'm one of those 93 plants and I'm making 21 million pounds per year. Yeah. <laughs> and they knew how to do that. I worked there for whatever, 10 years. You can talk to me about that. Hmm. Conversely, you can go to YouTube and find the guy who's got the, you know, mason jar and the, yeah. the heavy cream and shaking it and be like, I'm making butter. <laughs> so there's, there wasn't anything in between. Sure. And um, further, cultured butter um, is, is, you know, 99.9% .9 of the butter sold in the United States is, is, is sweet cream butter, meaning the milk is, is the heavy cream is, is pasteurized and they immediately churn it into butter. And then after the butter is churned, they will add uh, flavorings. They'll add diacetyl, you know, like a microwave popcorn or lactic acid a lactic acid powder or liquid to make it taste like butter. Um, so that butter taste that you get is uh, added in 99.9% of the cases. Um, even, and so I'll explain cultured butter. So we wanted to do a cultured butter because we didn't want to add anything. Sure. Um, and so we had to research all the different, you know, what is cultured butter? How do you do it? And, and it was just a, it was, it was complex and, and there weren't a lot of people. The Department of Ag, who is otherwise in, in Georgia, has otherwise been fantastic. They had no idea. They were like, I don't know that. We've never experienced that. Good luck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, butter, no, and definitely not cultured butter. Uh, so we, uh, we ended up, I ended up pulling uh, going to Google, going to libraries, and pulling uh, 19th and early 20th century uh, dairy journals. Um, just and it, and it was eye-opening um, because the way that they would figure things out is it wasn't it wasn't um, the same as it is today. Like if you read it, if you read a paper today, like an academic paper, it's very like 
the pictures of the mold, the chemical, the molecules, and you know, it's like it's super scientific sounding. Um, and if you don't have a degree, an advanced degree, it's hard to understand. Back then, these were practitioners that were writing these these academic papers, and they would uh, empirically, they would it was more empirical. They would do a hundred churns and a hundred fermentations, and they would write down their results in a in a big table, and they would put it in this journal. They'd be like, "Here's what happened when we did at these different temperatures, and using these different cultures, and uh, this different fermentation time." And so it was it was, and, and it was incredibly helpful. It was like, "Wow, you know, it's like if I could reach out and thank the guy in 1904 yeah. that." Put this put this together. I would because it was so helpful, and um, and it's funny that 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 art has been has been lost. Um, yeah, uh, for so many years. Um, so anyway, that that's kind of how we yeah figured it out. Well, and it's so funny because you know, kind of the rallying cry for entrepreneurship now is you literally at your fingertips have access to all the information in the world that you could possibly want to start a business. You just Google it up, you hit YouTube and, you know, watch as many hours of content as you could possibly find. But there's something really cool about the fact that you had to go a step further and you had yeah. to take a step oh my gosh. further and oh my find gosh. this information that, like you said, was sort of buried and, and lost to a large degree. It is non-YouTubeable. It is non-Googleable. <laughs> stuff that yeah parts to a batch churn if you don't know what something is you cannot put it on google uh images right it will have it will be useless google is useless when it comes to some of these um i don't know what you call it these lost art type endeavors um because there's a ton of information about Windows domain and you know coding what whatever like putting data into Redis databases. There's like a ton of information out there. Yeah. But when it comes to things that are non-technological or non, let's say twentieth twenty-first century, yeah, um, it is so hard to use Google to figure out the answer. In fact, it's impossible. You mm -hmm. have to find people who have the experience and then triangulate with some of the existing data sources. I did use Google. I mean, finding old journals or, or images on Google, um, doing straight free searches on finding answers to some of these things is just, just amazingly difficult. Right. Well, and it's one of those- You brought that up. Yeah, it's like barrier to entry used to be you had to have somebody in your family you know, who knew these things that just passed it on or somebody in your, your town or village or whatever it might be. So it's cool that Google ultimately helped you in finding something that's that true. you couldn't find through Google. <laughs> so, that's yeah. true. Finding those journals, I'm sure Avis Williams Library over on, you know, uh, Claremont Avenue wasn't going to yeah. have the uh, Canadian Dairy Journal from 1912. Sure. Um, that's funny. It's 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 been an interesting journey, and um, I I I love to be able to to pass along those pitfalls. And people ask, we often get we had a creamery come to us from Vancouver, 
Um, they wanted to do something similar. And it's just so enjoyable to, to talk to somebody who is yeah. the same thing that we were going through. Like, how do we, what is it, you know, why are we having this problem? Like, why is the butter turning out this way? And being able to share, you know, what we figured out with those guys. Yeah. And it's just really kind of cool. Yeah, that is super cool because it's like, you know, there's because of the way butter is produced now and the ways you were describing in this mass production by so few factories, what you guys do, I don't know that in e either of our lifetimes, you'll have to worry about like oversaturating the market with what <laughs> you guys do, right? Because right. That, like you said, butter production had devolved. So like you could be an open book now to folks, you know, in, in Vancouver or in LA or wherever, you know, it might be and, and share that, which is, is really cool. It's always more fun to, you know, feel like you can help somebody and not have to be guarded. Like, are, are you going to steal trade secrets from me or whatever yeah. it might be? So that's yeah. neat. I think it would be really cool if we had a bunch of smaller creameries popping up. Uh, and we do have, you know, we've got like Caligar Creamery um, down the street and, We've got some small cheesemakers, butter and you know mozzarella and ricotta. Those are things that are just not made in small quantities. Yeah, would um, love to see <clears throat> to see that happen because it does connect. It connects us to the farms. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we are working with. Um, do you, do you, did you grow up here, Jonathan? Or, or I grew up in Gwinnett. Yep, close. You grew up in Gwinnett. Do you remember? You, you may be too young to remember, but there was Atlanta Dairies was um, mm -hmm. a was a dairy co-op here that started in the '40s or '50s. Yeah. Um, and Dean Foods bought it. Oh, Par Parmalat, Parmalat, or whatever bought it. Bought them, um, and they used the brand for a little while, and it was all over Atlanta stores. Um, and then. Parmalet went out of business and sold to Dean Foods and then Dean Foods sold it. And along the way, they just let the trademark go. Um, and we noticed that it was available. So we, we filed for the trademark and we've been working with um, a local um, dairy farmer um, out of Alabama. And they have taken on the name Atlanta Dairies for their, um, their milk. Um, they sell the coffee shops and it's, it, they use a, a, a grass fed, a rotationally grazed um, grass fed milk, um, which means something. It's, it's the cows are on pasture 24 hours a day. They don't have a, a barn, to, to, but they have a milking uh, barn, but they're just on pasture and they move from green pasture to green pasture. And it's just a better way to produce milk and it's yeah. healthier and better the environment, et cetera. So, we they are using the Atlanta Dairies um, trademark and um, and it, it and it enables us to have that and we're buying a bunch of their cream coming yeah. from this farm that's in Georgia and so when people eat our butter drink their milk um, they have a connection to cows that are from here and yeah. it's the land that's here. Um, when you buy uh, whatever Challenger butter or Kerrygold or whatever, these those they're not. It's 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 not from here or or whatever. You know, you're buying something made up in New York. It's not the same. Right. And so it's it is sustaining. And I hate I don't I don't think it's useful to 
have people say, well, support your local economy. I mean, people should be able to buy brands that they want and enjoy hmm. the story. Um, but it, it, it has an effect on like those, it, it's a, it's a chain that, that goes from the, the farmer to the producer to, uh, you know, the brand yeah. we're producing as well. We're adding value to the retailer and it's all here. And I just think that that's such a cool thing. And so we've been super happy to, to partner with Atlanta dairies and, uh, you know, get close to those, those farmers as well. Yeah. That's super cool. And, uh, it kind of segues well into, you know, figuring out the product you want to offer is one thing, but I think when you're starting a business, figuring out sort of what you, what you stand for, what your, your brand values are, uh, what's important to you is sometimes just as important as, you know, the product you're putting out because it's going to guide a lot of decisions you make. It's going to, you know, heavily weigh on, on what your brand means to the community around you. What did you guys in those early days or even since then, what have you kind of locked in on uh, as far as sort of your brand identity and what's really important to you guys and the values that you hold dear? I think, you know, I wish I had my, my core values, um, you know, written out, but I, we have, we have a few things that we talk about internally. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll talk about those, but there are overriding, um, I guess, moral, um, guideposts that we use as well. Um, and those internal things are, um, we break, if, if something is broken and we break things a lot, we, we fix it. And that goes for, um, machine stuff. It goes for, you know, process and, you know, relationships and how we're speaking to each other. Um, so, so we, we fix things that are broken. Um, and we're internally, you know, our, our staff and myself, we, we're respectful and we communicate. We do not, we're not stomping up and down and throwing things and, you know, getting mad, which can be, that can happen in, in, uh, food service environments, um, you know, it's stressful and things can go wrong. And, but, you know, we tried to, to, to be pretty clear on that. Um, and I want people, I want all of, you know, our staff and the people who work with us to be super, uh, to, to have a good time and to enjoy their jobs. Um, and so we try to make it so that it's enjoyable and that, runs the gamut from paying, you know, enough, we, as, as much as we can afford, um, but paying them enough that it's not, you know, toiling or feeling like toiling, yeah. um, but also giving them flexibility, you know, internally to, to kind of do what they need to do and, and grow. So that's kind of our internal staff. And then there are these other mentioned kind of guideposts that we have, and it's about respect for the environment. I think in food, food you have to be very uh, conscious of how you're sourcing yeah. and unfortunately um, the brands that often do very well um, in terms of just growing rapidly super rapidly like chips companies and things like that mm. it's low value food mm. um, I, I eat chips just like anybody else but I'm not saying you know oh today chips are bad but those are those brands are uh, very cheap to produce mm. And it's all about the 
what's on the package. Like, what? Oh, that's made with coconut oil or something. You know, so it's it's brandy, um, and it's it's just about like you know getting big and and cheap. Like, how cheap can we get things and let's have a lot of margin and sell three for one at, at the you know whatever natural food market um, and just go ballistic. Um, what's more important to me is uh, sourcing, truly sourcing it the best that we can. And we're not perfect, but but really trying to find. Um, the least impactful, um, you know, milk and, and you know, working with the farmers that they're using these, these, these different approaches, avoiding RBST and uh, trying to go as much grass fed as we can. Um, and so being respectful of the environment and, and thoughtful about how we source. And then I'd say, you know, respect for uh, the food service uh, world. I, I've, I've grown, and I'm sure, I don't know if you've talked to a lot of restaurants on your podcast, but these guys, these chefs, and their staff work so hard, and so we, when we sell to them, they're our customers, and so we we work very hard to be uh, in line with with what they want, and give to those causes when when we have an opportunity uh, that support food food service workers and and those chefs. Uh, because I think it's so important and they work so hard and they're so impactful to people just every day's life. They, they add so much beauty. So I'd say those things that just pop out in my mind as being yeah. important to us. No, that's great. And the last thing you're talking about with just building relationships with those chefs and, um, you know, restaurants in the community, what, what did you guys do sort of at the beginning and what do you continue to do to this day? to, okay, you've created this product that um, you think fills a, fills a need, uh, fills a white space, and, and has some really practical uses, but then how do you figure out the distribution pieces? Um, what have you done mm-hmm. to sort of uh, get your name out there and, and figure out, okay, these are the different channels that we're going to use to get our product uh, to market and into the public? Uh, <clears throat> this was experimentation too, Jonathan. It was just kind of figuring out if online, you know, selling butter online is kind of a, I don't think there's anybody else that really, <laughs> really does that to any extent. And, and, and so one of our larger channels, uh, believe it or not, is online sales. Uh, direct to consumer. Direct consumer. And so we've set up, an, we set up an online shop early on and um, have figured out how to ship cross country. It's expensive to get out to California in two days, but yeah. um, we we had served the southeast and the northeast and the midwest pretty pretty strongly and so that's one of the kind of unique channels that we've that we've leveraged um and very very interesting experience and then um and then just straight retail um through whole foods the whole foods south team you know amazon acquired whole foods yeah um as you remember and everybody's like, ah, oh, you know, this is going to be bad. They're going to turn into, you know, little Amazon. But that South team has been so so good to us and helpful. And like, you know, here's here's what you guys need to be doing to get our product out there and more efficiently. So they they're the ones who drive distribute. You know, they're big enough to say, hey, use this distributor, and we'll make sure that it gets here. Um, so without those those strong strong retail. Uh, Central Market in Texas is another one. Without those 
those strong retail partners, you couldn't, it's harder to get those distribution partners. They have to have their customers saying, yeah, we want this. Yeah. So that's been a lot of what we've done. And then in terms of like this food service, connecting with the chefs, same things like hotels, like high-end hotels and restaurants, um, and just making connections and saying, hey, we know who you are. We love your food. Um, we would love for you to try our butter and, you know, use a Southern butter. You're a Southern restaurant, Southern hotel. Um, we'd love for you to think about using using it here and making those connections directly to the, yeah. the different chefs. We talked a little bit before we came online just about uh, the community, especially in Atlanta, um, of, uh, you know, restaurateurs and, and food entrepreneurs uh, and how important that is. I wonder if you could just touch on that, on uh, what avenues you guys have found super helpful in Atlanta to sort of, uh, you know, just commune with other people that have, that are kind of doing um, things in the, in the food industry and, and making mm -hmm. how important that's been for you. Yeah. As, as I was mentioning to you, there's, um, we, uh, my wife, um, what, who is just an incredible organizer reached out to, uh, a bunch of different local food companies when we first started and said, look, we're all in the same boat here. We, we would love to visit with you about what you're doing and how you're handling these situations. Um, and so we helped create a, uh, a group here called uh, the Atlanta Local Food Group called ALF. Um, and it includes, uh, I think you guys are talking to Stephen Cars, but it includes King of Pops, um, Due South, which is a pickle making company, um, Honeysuckle Gelato, uh, American Spirit Works, Pure Bliss, uh, Montaigne, America. so it's got it's got uh, Garnish and Gather. It's got a, a number of different um, uh, companies that are, were in the same position as as we were then, and, and kind of in the same position now, growing and trying to figure things out, and just sit around a table at Homegrown over there on Memorial Drive, yep. and ask questions like, "Oh my gosh, this happened to us. We had all this product." spoil you know and it was at a it was at a partner's warehouse like are we liable for that and like just getting people's input um and usually people have experienced <laughs> usually there's someone sitting around you that has experienced that problem sure and they can give you their opinion so for anybody who's starting or ha has a small business having those support groups for people in the same general industry even if they compete a little bit with you mm. i think is uh is an important uh really helpful thing to thing to do yeah absolutely and you know you think about it so you know i grew up watching a lot of sports and playing sports and you know the phrase like healthy competition all you know should make you better so even if you're you know collaborating or or commiserating sometimes with uh, folks who are your your competitors if you're both improving that's good right and if, and if right. it motivates you to, to make your product better to um, continue to expand your networks to continue to expand your your retail partners like these are all positive things from a business growth standpoint and finding healthy competition that's not you know undercutting um, your your competitors um, you know I don't know if you're a 
a Gary V guy at all, but one of the things he says is, you know, I want to build the tallest building in town by building the tallest building in town, not by tearing down other people's buildings. Yeah. Uh, I agree completely. And if you're, I'm not saying that you should be sharing everything. Mm. Um, I think that that can be a mistake in some instances, but um, finding the right mentor group or the right peer group, uh, you can share a a lot. And sometimes it's just like, like you said, commiserating, like, ah, I think I did the wrong thing here. This is, really hard um you have employees that go rogue or you know you lost a lot of money one month or whatever it is um they can be your you know your support group i i I think it's really really important to do that and then you're not in the position where you're saying like hoping that somebody else like oh yeah i hope that they fail that'll make me feel (laughs) feel better (laughs) um you're really kind of focused on how because then you realize like everybody's going through the same thing, like the same challenges. Yeah. Um, and it gives you strength. It, it builds you up. Yeah, for sure. And Drew, you know, the elephant in the room right now for, for everybody, and I know especially in the food and restaurant industry is uh, the impact that COVID-19 is having on, on the restaurant industry in particular, but uh, on the food industry as a whole as well. What is, uh, first of all, how has it impacted you guys and what has it forced you to sort of reevaluate or, or pivot or, or rethink um, as you're moving forward and trying to figure out, you know, how you mm-hmm. get forward in the midst of this thing? Uh, it's been tough. I mean, the, the restaurants have gone, the restaurant, our restaurant business made up the majority of our, our revenue. Yeah. Um, and that's to one, you know, for the first, the, during the lockdown period, it went away completely. Getting no POs for for restaurants, um, it's it's bounced back a little bit. Um, our retail business has gone up uh, substantially, but not enough to offset that that decline. And so what we're doing is we we bought a packaging machine. We're kind of like assuming that things are going to grow. We're putting money on the line and um, uh, you know hoping that uh, things pop back. Uh, pretty quickly when we're able to get back out and get around. I think they will. Um, Otherwise we wouldn't be investing in the business like we are. We'd be, uh, you know, hunkering down, but we have been investing even with revenue down. And we've also been reaching out to our, our chefs and our restaurants and trying to tout our restaurants and keep them as going as much as we can. I'm I'm worried about, um, the impact for, for some of these high end restaurants that don't have, you know, if they're at 25% capacity, they can't continue to pay rent at that level. And so we've been trying to get the word out and get people to buy kits and things from some of our restaurants that are selling kits or outdoor seating and just trying to help them out as much as we can and then uh, wait it out. Um, yeah. But we're, we're driving, we're growing new routes on retail and investing in the business and, just kind of keeping it, keeping the fires burning as much as we can. Sure. Well, pre-COVID-19, I know that as business owners, you're always thinking about, okay, whether it's doubling down on what we do really well or, you know, expanding on what we do, you know, I've got ideas for the future. What, you know, what are, assuming COVID goes away and you, you can resume business and the, the restaurant mm-hmm. 
bounces back. What are your hopes and dreams uh, for Banner Butter five, ten years down the, down the line? We, as I've said before, we don't want to cover the world in butter and be one of those, you know, giant two million pound per 21 million pound per year plants. That's not what we're trying to do. No. I do want to um, get our brand out there, grow it. I do believe things will bounce back and we'll get back on that, that growth trajectory that we were on and uh, get people excited about uh, thoughtfully made things that they once thought were commodities, maybe go yeah. back to to the old school, like, hey, you know, this is this is something I want to pay a little bit more attention to, um, and just have more people experience our product. And I know that sounds simple and maybe a little self-serving, but that's kind of what I want. I just want more people to 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 taste it and enjoy it and, and connect with us. That's it's as basic as that, I guess. Awesome. Well, lastly, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to tell folks. I know you mentioned Whole Foods, but where can people find you, uh, find your product, find you guys on social media, learn more about uh, your company? Yeah, I appreciate it, Jonathan. Um, so we are a retail, um, sell our retail butters, sell at Whole Foods all in the South. So wherever there's a Whole Foods, you're going to find our butter. Um, also, Earth Fairs um, are opening back up. And if you're in Texas, Central Market in Texas, and then a bunch of local stores, um, you know, we're uh, – bunch of different like butcher shops like pine street and chop shop close by here um and so if you go to your local butcher shop you can find us there too it's real our butter's really good on steaks and seafood and some things like that um so that's where i'd say you'd find us and then in terms of just online it's just bannerbutter.com we would love for y'all to visit with us and connect with us um we love atlanta and so happy that that i was able to to talk to you today absolutely drew thanks for the time we wish you uh, all the best um you know hope the bounce back is uh is more than you guys could could ever hope for <laughs> uh, yes you know, know if there's anything we can do on our end and and we'll be in touch soon i'm sure yeah thanks jonathan i appreciate it love yep. your show and love what you're doing thanks drew have a good one we'll talk to you soon okay take care Find Banner Butter throughout the Southeast in Texas in your local Whole Foods, Earth Fair, and Central Markets. Don't have one of those shops around? Have no fear. You can also order online at bannerbutter.com. Atlanta Born and Brand is a production of Connext Media. We're a full-service digital media company focused on helping small businesses tell their story in the most effective way they can. If you'd like to tell the story of your business, we'd love to help. You can find us at connectatl.com. Make sure to subscribe to Atlanta Morning Brand in Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. If you like the show, we'd really appreciate a review and a rating. And of course, share it with your friends. Keep up with the show on social media. We're at ATL Born Brand on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also like our Atlanta Morning Brand Facebook page. Finally, you can find all the previous episodes of the show on our website, atlborn.com. For Atlanta Born and Brand and Connects Media, I'm Jonathan Hilliard. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all soon.